Our Father, we are thankful that you are knowable, but at the same time, you're incomprehensible. If we could completely comprehend you and your ways, you would not be much of a God. I think of that passage in uh, Proverbs 16. It says, the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Now, we don't get that. Uh, That just doesn't sync with us. And we know you're not the author of evil, but you somehow use evil. And evil happens to Christians. We've had guys this week that have interacted with evil, and it's affected them. Or in the last year. And we puzzle and we wonder and we, how can this be? How can this be? But we are encouraged when we read through your whole word and we get glimmers and we get hints, even with our limited understanding. Evil happened to Joseph. You could have stopped him being sold into slavery, but you didn't. He had to wonder about that. Of course he did. He was just a 17-year-old kid. And out of nowhere, all of his dreams and hopes and plans were absolutely crushed. And as far as he knew, he would never recover. He would never get his life back. But years and years later, after you had providentially worked, he said to his brothers who had done the evil, he said, you intended it for evil. But God intended it for good, to bring about this present result. Somehow, Lord, Romans 8.28 is ever, ever true and is never compromised. And we know that God works all things for good to those who are called according to his purpose. That's an amazing thing. That that is an amazing thing, that you can take the evil that hits us. Sometimes it's evil of our own making. Sometimes it's evil from others. But you can take that, the worst things that have ever happened to us, and you turn it for good. Now, some of us are waiting for that to happen. Some of us are seeing glimmers of that starting to happen. Some of us have lived long enough and the evil event was so long ago that we're already seeing the good that has come out of what we thought was, well, no good could possibly come out of. We say all these things, Lord, to remind ourselves that you can be trusted in every event, in every stage of life. Uh, You can be trusted because you are trustworthy. You've never lied. You've never misled. You've never broken a promise. That's the basis of our faith. We trust that what you have said to us is true. Uh, We're studying this whole concept in Hebrews 11 of walking by faith. Support our faith, buttress our faith, encourage our faith. Some of us, our faith's a little wobbly, it's a little weak for whatever the circumstances are around us, but bolster it, undergird it, 
send in the Calvary to help our faith. And help us tonight to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. We look to him tonight and his spirit to teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, Hebrews 11. One more time. And in this very brief uh, verse, a number of individuals are mentioned that we have been looking at over the last several weeks. And I'm referring to Hebrews 11.32. What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets. Um, These men are all in the book of Judges. I don't know if they had in Israel during the time of the Judges, that 300-year period. Uh, There was no king at the time. But if there had been, I wonder if he had a, I, I wonder if, I wonder if he would have given a State of the Union address. And I wonder what he would have said. I imagine what he would have done, and you've got to remember, this is one of the worst times in the history of all of Israel. It's just, it, it's, they, they had left God, they had gone off to the idols. Instead of being victors, they were victims. Instead of being blessed, they were cursed. All because they had left the covenant. All because... As Joshua said at the end of his life, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And as he was getting ready to go to be with the Lord, and he encouraged them. He said, hey, you gotta, each man's got to decide for himself what you and your house are going to do. Well, when Joshua died, and after this great period of time of the conquest and taking all the ites and conquering them, and God giving them cities they didn't build and houses they didn't build, they didn't build and orchards they didn't plant and cisterns they didn't hewn, God just dropped blessing on them. Well, what happened was, uh, after they became prosperous, and, and he warned them in Deuteronomy 6, he said, when I give you these cities, when I give you these homes, when I give you uh, all this prosperity, when I give you these orchards, when I give you these crops, I mean, he just backed a dump truck on these guys and just showered them with blessing. He said, be careful that it not turn your heart away. And it did. That's why most of us can't handle too much prosperity. Because we're not careful, it turns our heart. It causes us to drift. Seek ye forth the kingdom of God, the Bible says. You remember that verse? Seek ye eleventh the kingdom of God. It's not what it says. We all know the verse, seek ye first. But if we're not careful, riches, too much prosperity, too much stuff, wanting more stuff, can turn our hearts. Happens to any of us. We're not careful. The Lord knows what we can handle, so He measures it out to us. If it starts to turn our heart, I mean, He gives. If it starts to turn our heart, He'll take away. You know, God is my banker. God is your banker, ultimately. He has ways of getting our attention. Uh, In the book of Judges, they just kept wandering away from the Lord, and they kept wandering and downward spiraling, spiraling and downward. It just got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And the last verse of Judges, you say, why are you speaking of Judges? Because these four men, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, are in Judges. If you turn over to Judges, 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. The last verse of Judges really caps that entire 300 years. And it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king. But very soon after Judges, there was going to be a king. The people would cry for a king. And they would, Samuel said, hey, the Lord is your king. Well, we want a king like the other nations. So they're going to get Saul. And it starts the period of the kings. But if there had been a king in the book of Judges, and he had given a State of the Union address, what would he have said? I think I know what he would have said. He would have gotten up and he would have said, the State of the Union is strong. Because that's what they always say. At least they've said it since uh, Reagan first said it. Joe Carter uh, has written an article, Why is the State of the Union Always Strong? And he's gone back to all the State of the Union addresses uh, since 1913. And they didn't say strong until Reagan first said it in '83. Uh, in 49, Truman said the State of the Union is good. In 65, uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson said the State of the Union depends in large measure upon the state of the world. Uh, in 68, Johnson said the State of the Union is we're challenged. Nixon said in 73, the State of the Union is sound and full of promise. Uh, in 75, Jerry Ford said, the State of the Union is not good. Well, thanks for telling me the truth, man. Appreciate it. And in 76, Ford said, it's better, but in many ways, a lot better, but still not good enough. Okay, I'll buy that. In 80, Carter says, it depends on the state of the world. And in 1981, he went back to sound. I could say some things. I'm not commenting here. And then in 83, Reagan said the State of the Union is strong, but the economy is troubled. If you remember back then, it was. In 84, he says it's much improved. From then on, pretty much every president said the State of the Union is strong. It's strong. In 90, uh, Bush, one, said it sounded strong. 94, Clinton, and Clinton said it's growing stronger, but it must be stronger still. In 2000, Clinton said it's stronger than it has ever been. Uh, uh, President Bush every year said it was strong. In four and five, he said it's confident and strong. Obama said in 2009 it's stronger than before. I didn't watch the address last night, but apparently he said we can say with renewed confidence that the state of our union is stronger, it's weaker. It's weaker. It doesn't matter what they say. What matters is what is reality. And for, there was no king in the book of Judges, but if the, a king had have gotten up and said, at any point during the State of the Union, d d during the 300-year period of time of the Judges, especially during the time of Samson, who we're going to look at tonight, if he had have gotten up and said the State of the Union is strong, he would have been lying through his teeth, because it was getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, just as we are. In, in many ways, when you look at the book of Judges and what was going on, 
and how they had left, left their biblical foundations. And you can only leave biblical foundations for so long before you start spinning off into lawlessness and into violence and into chaos. You can only abandon the truth of God for so long. And then there's a price to be paid. Um, you can only live off the spiritual capital of the past for so long. And then you run out of capital. Well, that's where we are. I was watching a, uh, a, a few days ago, I watched a video of uh, Francis Schaeffer speaking in 1982. And the last book that Dr. Schaeffer wrote, he was a Christian philosopher, apologist, um, started uh, Labrie Fellowship in Switzerland. He was called the apostle to the intellectuals. Schaefer really made a lasting impact. And in 1982, this clip that I watched on YouTube, in 1982, he was talking about, um, he was talking about our country and the fundamental shift that had taken place in our country. And he said, when you go back to the founding fathers, and you know, guys, there's a reason people came to America. Now, we weren't perfect. Of course we weren't. We had people come to this country because they were enslaved. But, <clears throat> and it was Christians who fought that and attempted to, for years and years and years, to, to deal with that and to get it taken care of. Anyway, we, we're not saying we were perfect. But every nation has laws, and your laws come from somewhere. The laws in Saudi Arabia come from the Koran. The laws in this country came from the Bible. That's why if you go to Washington, D.C., you see scripture everywhere in Washington, D.C., everywhere. Supreme Court, you got the Ten Commandments chiseled in marble. That's got to drive them nuts. <laughs> but it's everywhere because laws come from somewhere. And what Francis Schaeffer was saying, we've had a fundamental shift. He said, you go back to the foundations of this country. And by the way, why did people want to come to this country? How come nobody on your street is picking up and moving to Cuba this week? Because Cuba has a different foundation. And I heard today, you know, supposedly we're going to pull guys out of Afghanistan now. And, and some of the Afghan people apparently are upset at that because they're afraid they're going to lose whatever stability is there, which is understandable. I don't know too many people that are picking up and moving to Afghanistan now or in two years or in five years. Why? Because they have a different foundation than we do. And what Schaefer was saying, if you go back to the foundational documents of this country, why was there liberty? Why was there justice? Why did people want to make great sacrifice to get here and get their kids here? Because there was opportunity that was here that was nowhere else. Why? Because of how we were structured. Primarily, we were structured off principles out of the scriptures. Okay. That was our foundation. And Schaefer said, if you go back and look at the founders, uh, all of them weren't Christians. Many of them were. And then, of course, we have to say, as they always say, yeah, but many of them were deists. Some were deists. Jefferson was. Franklin was. But even deists believed in a creator. And as a result of believing in a creator who is higher than us, the deists believed that he sort of uh, made the clock and wound it and then left it alone and was not involved in the daily affairs, which is not right, because he upholds all things by the word of his power. He providentially is involved in every detail from the beginning to the end. 
That's the providence of God. Um, okay. But even the deist believed in a creator. And our documents say that we have been endowed by our creator with inalienable rights. So the idea was that we have certain rights, but where do we get the rights? We got them from our creator God. So there was a theistic God who was the basis. He was the God who gave the law. He was the God who was the creator. And because he created us in the image of God, male and female, he created them. We have inherent worth and dignity. So you respect that in other people. So it doesn't matter if you come from wherever you come. You know, we, don't have, we didn't have the system that they had in Europe or in Britain and the class system and all that, apart from slavery, you know, because we had our flaws. Okay. You get what I'm saying. But what Schaefer was saying in 82 was, he said, there's, there's been an earthquake. And what's happened is, instead of theism, godism, as the basis for our country and for our government. And by the way, the three branches of government come out of the book of Isaiah. See, it's all tied into the scriptures. Schaefer said there's been this shift. And you take what happened in France during the Enlightenment, and now that has permeated. Uh, basically, that's humanism instead of theism, godism. What is humanism? Humanism isn't humanity or humanitarianism. Humanism is that man is the authority and man is central and that there is no creator, there is no revealed truth, there is no God-given law, but man is the center and man is the capstone and man is the greatest. And he is, he is here. But man is the ultimate. Uh, you can get online and read the Humanist Manifesto. They deny that God is there, and they demand, and they, and they say that man is the ultimate. So there is no creator, there is no law. And when humanism comes in, and as Schaefer was saying, listen, here's what's happening. It's permeating our educational system, which it is. It's permeating the government. And he basically said, in 82, I believe we're heading for tyranny. In 82, he said that. Because when you take God out of the equation, and you take a Christian voice out of the equation, and you take the law and Christian principles, you've got nothing to govern this thing anymore. And law becomes not fixed in the character of God or what God has said, but law becomes up to a, a group of elites. And he said, I think tyranny is going to primarily come through large government and through the courts. That's what he said in 82. Because the courts are answerable to no one. So I saw a thing this week online, a big push. Hey, we're all going to go to Washington, and we're going to, uh, and the whole thing, we're going to go to Washington here in a few months. And uh, we want you to show up, and we want you to talk to your congressmen and your senators, because they're accountable to you. Great. But the courts aren't. That's the missing piece. That's the Achilles heel. And so Schaefer in 82, and, it, and Roe versus Wade had just happened, where... An arbitrary decision was made by a handful of individuals that turned over law in all 50 states just like that, with no basis for the decision to say that's not a human being, that is just a blob of self. 
And it was done by fiat. And he said, this is where we're going, and this is just the first wave, and it's the first taste. But this is how a nation, this is how religious liberty and religious freedom is taken away. Uh, he said, I, this is where we're going. And it's the first shot across the bow. He said that in 82. Now, that's kind of what was happening in uh, the book of Judges. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So it was a time of lawlessness. So what Schaefer was saying is, he says, here's what you're going to see, and we're seeing it 31 years later. That decisions are going to be made on a Supreme Court, and instead of looking at law, this is what he said in 82, he says judges are going to start making law. And this is what we're watching. In fact, if they want to pass your law, and your law is not written so that they can pass it, they will rewrite it for you and say the very opposite thing from what you said. You say it isn't this, well, I say it is this, and so now it's legal. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It's where we are. And the latest is gay marriage. Well, I wonder what's going to happen. You don't need to wonder. You don't need to wonder at all. Because a small group is going to decide arbitrarily not based on anything other than their own personal view and what they want the law to be at that particular time. In 82, he said this. And here we are. So aren't you glad you came tonight? But it's where we are. And God is sovereign, and it's no shock and don't forget, he's in charge of all of it. You say, that can't be. Well, it can be. Go over to Job 12. I turn there often. He said, this, this is just incredible. Well, it's what happens. It's what happened in the book of Judges. You leave God, you leave his truth, and society falls apart. It's Romans 1.18 to the end of the chapter. So if you look at Job chapter 12, verse 23... What does it say? He makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then he leads them away. Watch this. He deprives of intelligence the chiefs of the earth's people and makes them wander in a pathless waste. They grope in darkness with no light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. Does that not, does that not describe the leadership of this country? Absolutely it does. Absolutely. Does it describe all of them? No. But enough of them to concern us, and we should be concerned. All I'm saying to you guys is that we see this in the Scriptures. Uh, you say, gosh, that's kind of disturbing. Well, there's all kinds of disturbing things in the Scriptures. You read the passage in Revelation, and those who have been martyred for Christ are crying out to the Lord, when are you going to avenge our souls? And the Lord says, it's not time to avenge you yet because I have others who are yet to be martyred. What? You know what, you know what he's saying? I have planned that others would be martyred and they must be martyred. And when the last one is martyred, then I'm going to kick in the next stage of my prophetic plan. But it's not time yet because he has planned that Christians be martyred. 
Are you following me here? You say, well, that's a little disturbing. Yeah. You say, gosh, I'm wondering if I'm one of those guys. That's what's disturbing. <laughs> it's like the whole thing on uh, pre-trib and post-trib and mid-trib. And when the, qu the question comes, hey, every once in a while, I'll get an email. And I just remembered I got one before Christmas and never responded to it because I lost it. So if you're here, uh, allow me to respond because <laughs> I didn't respond. Hey, Steve, I've been reading this prophetic stuff. Do you think we're going to go through the tribulation? Well, here's, that's not what you're asking. What you're asking is, do you think, am I going to go through the tribulation? <laughs> right? Because nobody wants to suffer. Job says, he will perform that which is appointed for me. Whatever God has for us, he gives us the grace to sustain us. And maybe you've been through something, and before you ever went through it, you said, I could never go through that. And you never could because you weren't there. But when you're there, he gives you the grace. All I'm saying is, guys, as we see things continue to go in the wrong direction, he's in charge. He's directing the course of events, and his eye is upon us even as things fall apart. Now, what we want to do is that we want to experience his favor and his blessing in the midst of all of this chaos. So what do we want to do? We want to walk with him. We want to walk close to him. Now, I want to tell you something else. You want to obey him. Obey him. Well, that sounds legalistic. It's, they're, they're, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll what? You'll keep my commandments. Obey. Don't you want your kids to obey you? He wants us to obey him. But here's what happens. We're always fighting. Sometimes we, we spend the best years of our lives fighting God. Because we just don't want to do what he says. And then what he's got to do is he's got to let us go our course and train wreck our lives and wind up in a ditch. And then in desperation, we call out to him. And what does he do? He reaches down and he resurrects us. Okay, you done with this foolishness? Is that enough? Or you, or you, going, you, want, you want to go your own way some more? God, okay, I, 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 I surrender. That's where that song, I Surrender All, came from. I'm in. That's the best day of your life when you're in. Now he can start using you and putting you back together. Uh, Greg Lucas wrote this, and I want to read it to you. It's worth listening to. Greg Lucas, I read this this week on his blog. He said, I got into a fist fight last week. I suppose you could call it a fist fight. I got hit about 10 to 12 times without landing a single punch myself. <laughs> it's been a while since I've been in a fight. As a police officer, I probably get into more fights than the average middle-aged man. But at 46, my reflexes are not what they used to be. So I got a little beat up. He was off duty. It all started when I attempted to make a man do something I thought he should do. I grabbed his shirt sleeve, directed him in the direction I wanted him to go. I'm usually pretty good at directing people. Apparently, he was not having the best day, and this was not the direction he wanted to go. So he responded by taking a swing at me. 
I managed to duck the first blow and easily redirect his momentum, moving him through the open door of my pickup truck where he landed square on his back in the front seat. With his back to the seat, he reached for anything he could throw in my direction to keep me away from him, which happened to be a set of car keys, a water bottle, and an ESV study Bible. The keys missed my head by a couple of inches, and I managed to dodge the water bottle, but the Bible hit me right in the chest. Uh, an out-of-context illustration of Hebrews 4.12. Uh, as he searched the cab of my truck for something else to launch at me, I took advantage of the distraction and rushed forward through the doorway. He caught me with an up kick to my midsection, but I managed to grab both his legs and pin them to the dash. My tunnel vision focus on his legs left his hands unsecure, and I was met with five or six quick strikes to the back of my head with his fist, followed by several scratches to my scalp and face from his fingernails. And believe it or not, my mind instinctively went back to a basic rule from my initial police training. Watch the hands. Hands kill. If you control the hands, you control the fight. So I abandoned his legs, latched onto his wrist, pushing his fist into his chest while simultaneously wrapping my leg around his ankles to control his feet. His explosive strength and speed humbled my aging muscles and slower reflexes. But at least I was now in control of the situation, or so I thought. About the time I was catching my breath and making a new game plan, I felt the sharp vice-like lock on my forearm, looked up to see the man clenching his teeth down on my jacket sleeve. My jacket was thick enough to keep the bite from penetrating skin, but the initial shock of the pain made me instinctively react. Still holding his wrist, I broke away from the bite, lodged my elbow and forearm under his chin, forcing his head back, his mouth closed, and averting any possible headbutting or biting retaliation. You think you've got a tough job. The only offense he had left was to spit in my direction, which he did several times between primal screams of violent anger. I took the spit. It was better than the alternative. Turning my face to avoid most of the projectile spray, I just happened to glance on the back seat of the truck where I saw my wife, daughter, and teenage son, because he's off duty. The look on their faces made me realize how serious this incident had become, and I needed to end this fight. With one last burst of adrenaline-fueled energy, I lifted the man to his feet and out of the seat. Still holding his wrist, I swept his legs with my left foot, took him to the ground in the soft snow beside the door of the truck. The powder absorbed most of the impact, allowing me to move to a superior position. As I pinned his arms to the ground with my hands, I knew by the look on his face that the fight was almost over. He continued to struggle and spit, but he was quickly running out of gas. I held him there in the snow till the ice absorbed his energy and cooled his rage. Are you finished? I muttered, nearly out of breath. I'm not letting you go. He struggled one last time and then finally nodded his head in surrender. I slowly but cautiously helped him to his feet and I dusted the snow from his back. The fight was over. I loaded him into the truck and continued on to our destination. The man I was fighting is not some deranged criminal. He is my son. Autistic and nonverbal, he is a two-year-old in a 20-year-old body. Like most two-year-olds, he throws fits from time to time. Unlike most two-year-olds, he can do a lot of damage. 
He can hurt my wife and seriously hurt my daughter, and he can almost whip me. Almost. It all began as we were headed out the door to a Super Bowl party. He wanted to take his iPad, and I said no. And he transformed into the Incredible Hulk. Sitting in a truck with a protective arm around my son, I began to think how the Lord could possibly be in this. I thought of big words like sanctification and sovereignty, even Imago Dei and fearfully and wonderfully made. These are bold and profound words I admittedly preach louder when times are less painful. Then as the adrenaline dump sapped all of my remaining strength, a glaring image flashed through my head of a man struggling to get away. He cursed his family and his Lord. He fought against love and kicked against the Goads. He spit in the face of the one who loved him most. But despite the rebellion and violence, even through the worst of sin and insurrection, the father would not let him go, holding him tightly till all of the defiant energy was spent. I am that man. I will not let you go. I will remember those words of tough love and bloody redemption very well, spoken by the father of my salvation and echoed by the wife of my youth. I am eternally grateful for their tenacious gospel grip. Jake finally settled down and apologized to me with tears and hugs and kisses. I wonder how he can vacillate so quickly between innocent bliss and animalistic violence. I wonder how much longer my strength will hold out but no matter how he acts, he will always be my son. I will fight his rebellion with all my strength and all my love. And I will never let go because I was never let go. Now that's Samson. Most of us know some about Samson. Samson spent the best years of his life wasting his life, fighting against God. When you look at the life of Samson, and he's in God's hall of faith. You say he spent most of his life fighting against God and resisting God? Absolutely he did. But he's in God's hall of faith. Because once again, he lived in a time of such spiritual darkness that it was a period of no faith, and from time to time, there would be glimmers of faith that stood out like lightning on the horizon in an otherwise dark world. His last act was one of faith. His last act was one of repentance. And I think undoing the regret in his life. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself. Samson is an interesting guy. Last week, we looked at his parents. We looked at the fact that they could not have children, and then the angel of the Lord shows up and says, you're going to have a son. He's going to be a Nazarite. Uh, he is set apart for me. He has a calling on his life from me. The Nazarite vow normally was a voluntary vow that a man or a woman could take. When you took a Nazarite vow, um, you set yourself apart to the Lord for a particular season of time. And during that season of time, there were three pledges. Uh, you would drink no wine. People normally drank wine. 
because water could not be trusted and wine had some alcohol content that helped fight disease. Uh, but you would drink no wine. Uh, you would not touch a dead body of any type, was the second thing. And you would never put a razor to your hair. Uh, a voluntary vow to be a Nazarite. However, from the womb, he was called by God to be a Nazarite. When his mother was carrying him, she could drink no wine because he was a child within his mother and she had to follow the Nazarite vows because he'd already been chosen or ordained as a Nazarite. And he wasn't a blob of flesh. He was a baby. He was human life. This was before Roe versus Wade. When you look at his life, and there's a lot of stuff in this guy's life. And what an object lesson. And a lot of us are going to relate to this guy tonight because his rebellion is so much like we've spent our lives in wasted years. A lot of us in here have a lot of regrets. Man, if I could have it to do over again. Well, we can't. We can't have it to do over again. But we have a God who, who, if any man is in Christ, behold, he is a new creature. All things pass away. Behold, all things become new. He doesn't want us spending our time regretting the past because that's wasted energy. What he wants to do is redeem today and redeem our future and do things that we can't even imagine that he could do. Now to him who was able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything you could ever ask or think. You say, well, that's heaven. It is heaven, but it's before you get to heaven. His grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and his reconciliation is staggering. Absolutely staggering. When you look, it, it's hard to break up this guy's life. At least I find it hard. But here's how I want to break it up for you. You know Samson. This, this Hercules of the Old Testament. This guy with incredible strength. Um, here's how I want to break up his life. There were 10 exploits of strength, 10 exploits of strength intermixed with three different women. Okay? That's the best I can do. We're going to look at the three women, but I want to go ahead and give you the 10 exploits of strength where he was used by God to stand against the Philistines who were the uh, pain in the side of the people of Israel. Okay. The first time he does a great exploit is in Judges 14, verses 5 through 9, the killing of the lion. The next one is in 14, 19, where he kills 30 Philistines. In 15, four verses, uh, 15 verses 4 through 6, you have the burning of the fields because he takes 300 foxes, or jackals, because the word for fox and jackal is the same in the Hebrew. Um, probably these were jackals. So why were they jackals? Uh, foxes, uh, uh, well, let's say this. Jackals run in packs. Foxes are loners. It would have been much easier to get a pack of jackals. And he had supernatural strength. So what does he do? He gets 300 jackals. He lights their tails on fire. This was before PETA. <laughs> and then what does he do? He turns them loose in the fields of the Philistines and it's harvest time. I mean, they got the John Deere harvesters coming in the morning. You know, the combines. To harvest the wheat. What does he do? He sends 300 jackals on fire into the fields and utterly destroys them. The crops. In 15, 7 through 8, number 4, you have another slaughter of the Philistines. 
in 1514 to 17. You have escaped from ropes and the killing of a thousand Philistines. And by the way, on the killing of the lion and the killing of the 30 of the Philistines, it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him or rushed upon him. It says that also in 1514, verses 14 through 17, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. But the last five, it never talks about the Spirit of the Lord coming on him. Because it seemed like because of his indulgence in sin and his hard-heartedness, the Spirit of the Lord did not come upon him any further. But he still had gifts that he had been given of strength. So in 16.3, you have the Gaza Gate incident, where they're camped around the Gaza Gate, these massive iron gates. And they're waiting for him all night. What does he do? Just before dawn, he goes in there and just rips the gates apart and puts those iron gates on his back, and he just walks over and walks up the side of a mountain and drops them up high. In 16.9, they tied him with bowstrings. He escapes. In 16.12, he escapes from other ropes. In 16.14, he escapes from the loom. And in 16.28-30, he uh, finally destroys 3,000 Philistines. Ten great exploits. But these are all intermingled with the great weakness of his life. Uh, The great weakness of his life uh, were women and sexual temptation. So let's turn back to Judges. I want to show you this. Oh, and by the way, he still finished strong. He wasted most of his life, and he still finished strong. When I look at this guy, here's here's what we're going to see. I see a guy who relied on his his God-given gifts without giving glory to God, pretty much. What gifts do you have? What are you good at? When you've taken those aptitude tests in school, they say, oh, you're good at math, or you're good with people, or you'd be a great salesman. Or, well, those are aptitudes. Those are strengths. Where did you get those? God gave them to you. Are you a great athlete? Were you a great athlete? Oh, then you were given great hand-eye coordination. Well, where'd you get that? So don't go like this when you do something. It was a gift. God gave it to you. Give glory to God. What have you been given that you did not receive? He relied on his God-given gifts without giving glory to God. Here was a man who was controlled by his passions. He neglected his calling. He wasted his years. His outer man was strong, but the inner man was hollow, and he still finished strong. That's amazing. He finished strong, although his whole life was pretty much a train wreck. All right, now let's start in Judges 14. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, the problem with this is that the Philistines were foreigners, and God specifically said in his word in Exodus 34, 16, that you cannot marry a foreign woman. Did this guy know that? Absolutely. So what does he do? Verse 2, he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore... Get her for me as a wife. He's been given all these gifts by God. He's been given the law of God. And what does he do? He doesn't care. And here's the reason he didn't care. Uh, Verse 3, his dad says and his mom say, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among our people that you can can go to take a wife uh, except from the uncircumcised Philistines? Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. You know what that literally means in Hebrew? If you have a New American Standard, you'll see it in the margin. 
get her for me because she is right in my eyes. In other words, she pleases my eyes. She looks good to me. What's interesting is that he says she is right in my eyes, but Deuteronomy 6.18 talks about the eyes of the Lord. He didn't care about that. He's just thinking about himself. So you got to watch your eyes. you got to watch the eye gate. This is where we go down sexually in temptation. It's like I was talking about. You know, I'm looking to see if the Rangers got any free agents today, and I get on that website, and all I see is the, uh, what do they call that? The, the, uh, the no swimsuit issue. That's all I see. And there's this chick standing there. I mean, the big banner, and I'm looking for the Rangers, and then underneath, there's, another, there's three more, and then to the side, there's about five more just, you know, shot, shot, you know, this whole thing. <laughs> and I'm looking for free agents. Oh, and it says, vote for Rookie of the Year. This is unbelievable. And they're all attractive to the eye. You see, the Flamingos had a hit back in the 50s. Some of you guys remember this. Some of you guys have never heard of the Flamingos. <clears throat> there was a song that, that um, said, I only have eyes for you. Are the stars out tonight? Uh, it would start off, Shabbat, Shabbat. <laughs> I forgot that. You guys remember that song? Shabbat, Shabbat. Shabbat, Shabbat. Let's stand and sing that together. <laughs> we'll sing the first and the fourth verse. The guy was saying, are the stars out tonight? I can't tell if it's cloudy or bright because I only have eyes for you. Shabbat, Shabbat. And then he says, my love is a special kind of blind love. I can't see anyone else but you. See, we have a responsibility as men. Yeah, my wife's getting older. Well, she's your wife. You're still supposed to be a one-woman kind of man. Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I will not gaze upon a young woman in lust. She is right in my eyes. If you're married to her, no one else is right in your eyes. Nobody else. So you learn to look away. You train yourself by the power of the Holy Spirit. You go against your natural reaction, and you look away. And you don't do that overnight. You don't jump in the Christian microwave and push two minutes and 30 seconds for sexual purity. Hmm. Hey. I don't look at chicks. Now you deal with it your whole life. Get her, she looks good to me. Um, and, then, and then go to um, verse 7. He goes back to the woman. He went down, talked to the woman, and she looked good to Samson. She's still looking good. Oh, when he returned later to take her, he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion. Behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. So he scraped the honey into his hands and went on eating as he went. See, he just violated his vow again. You don't touch a dead carcass. Well, see, he has no problem with that. Because once you go down that road, you get desensitized to any other kind of temptation. See, that's the thing about sin. It'll always take you farther than you want to go. It'll always take you and cost you more than you want to pay. That's the problem with sin. 
Verse 10, then his father went down to the woman. Samson made a feast there. The young men customarily did this. When they saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. Uh, and then they get into this riddle thing. He tells them a riddle, and they can't figure it out. So what they do in verse 15, they can't, and, and he had met a, made a bet with these 30 guys. It came about on the fourth day. They said to Samson's wife, entice your husband so that he will tell us the riddle, or we will burn you and your father's house with fire. See, this was a lawless age. It was a violent age. Sort of like the guy in uh, the cabin in Big Bear yesterday. You see, we're not shocked by anything anymore. So there's school shootings every week. I mean, it's just every week. Well, it was surprising, I don't know, surprising. Here, here's the thing that came out of this whole Big Bear cabin thing. Now they got these websites supporting this guy. We're all Chris Dorner. No, we're not. We all identify with him. Well, he ambushed two cops. What about a widow and what about little kids? And they're glorifying this guy. Why? Because we, we, we have gotten so far away from God and so far away from the truth of the Scriptures that we glorify violence. We glorify rebellion. He's a hero to certain people in this country. He's not a hero, but see, it's the book of Judges all over again. There was no king in the land. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. And when, when, when there is no law, when there is no God, God says you take a human life and you pay with human life. Oh, oh we can't do that. Justice should be swift. It teaches a lesson. Well, don't judge me. Well, you're going to get judged. We're all going to get judged. Unless you're in Christ. There's going to be a white throne judgment. Okay. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? Yes, he will. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Uh, these, these guys, it's a riddle, and they say, if you don't get him to tell us the riddle, we're going to burn you and your father's house with fire. And you know what? They actually did it. That's how far gone this culture was. If you look in 15, verse 6, so the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. They burned them alive. This was a, a civilization that spun off in the chaos and our anarchy because there was no law of God. That's what happens when you depart from God in His Word. And then in 15, verse, uh, actually 14, 20, I'm going to show you, I'm going to, I want to show you what happens to cultures when you lose the morality of the Bible. In 1420, Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his friend. So, so Samson leaves, and the father gave his wife, to, in some translations say, to his companion who had been his best man. What? Well, he's gone. Here, you take her. And then notice this, Samson comes back in 15, 1, after a while in the time of wheat harvest, Samson visited his wife with a young goat, said, I will go into my wife in a room. Her father did not let him enter. Her father said, I really thought you hated her intensely, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please, let her be yours instead, because the Supreme Court says it's okay. He didn't say that. 
But see, apparently there was no law, and he was making his own law arbitrarily. And what about his young? He's just giving these women away like they're worthless, yet they're both made in the image of God. But when you lose the truth of God, people get hurt. And society goes crazy. Okay. Um, jump down to 16. Here's another woman. Here's the second woman. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there, a prostitute, and he went into her. Now this is interesting because the prior verses say this in verse 18. After he killed the Philistines in chapter 15, after he destroyed their crops and then he took a jawbone and um, killed a thousand men, 18, he became very thirsty. He called to the Lord and said, I'm in 18 of 15. He called the Lord and said, you have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. And now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? uncircumcised? But God split the hollow place that is Lehi so that water came out of it. When, his, when he drank, his strength returned and he revived. You know what God did? This guy's he says, oh, I'm dying of thirst. I've just had a great battle. I, I need water. So what does God do? He splits a rock and an artesian well bubbles up and he drinks the water and the well's there to this day. What a blessing of God. Thank you, Lord. So what am I going to do? Uh, Samson went to Gaza and saw the heart up there and went into her. That's his next move. Strongest man in the world, but he has no self-control. He has no control over his spirit. I used to do a lot of chapels for the NFL. I would usually do the visiting team that came in to play the Cowboys. I don't know how that happened. But all of these chaplains know each other, and a lot of them were in the early 90s studying point man, and they found out I lived in Coppell at the time. And I'd get a call, hey, Steve, can you come over and do the Steelers Chapel? They're going to play or the, um, whoever was coming into town. And I, I did a lot of them, probably, I don't know how many I did, 20, 25, 30. I'd take my boys with me because they were young, and they'd get to see these guys, and we'd eat breakfast with them. And, you know, they're in awe. It was pretty neat. And these guys are all young, and they're big, and they're fit, and they're wealthy, and there are chicks everywhere in those hotels. That's a lot to put on a young man. And I go into the chapel service, and we have about 15 minutes, so I just start talking to them about strength. I say, I had a question for you guys. You guys all know how much you can bench press, don't you? I got a question for you. How much can you bench press with your character? Some of you guys are married, and you got these chicks out here in the lobby, and they'll do anything you want, and you know it. So how are you going to fight that off? Because you got a wife back home, and some of you have little kids at home. And you're a member of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. So how much can you bench press with your character? Let me tell you something. I know how much, you know how much you can bench press physically. But let me tell you something. You're going to lose that strength because you're going to get older. And you're going to get like me. And you'll get on an escalator and you'll pull a hamstring. <laughs> and see, they haven't thought about that because they're young and they think they're always going to be that strong. But you're not always going to be that strong. So you want to be developing your character. A lot of guys work with their sons. Oh, I want him to play baseball. I want him to make the Rangers. I want, to, so I want my son to hit a curveball. Well, have you taught your son how to hit a moral curveball? That's your job. There's only so many years he's going to be hitting curveballs. He's going to be hitting moral curveballs the rest of his life. And it's your job, Dad, Grandpa, to teach him. He sees a harlot. He went into her. Uh, then go down to verse 4. 
After, here's the third woman. After this, he came about that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. We know all about Delilah. And then what happens with Delilah? Well, Delilah, she wants to know, hey, uh, verse 5, the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said, entice him and see where his great strength lies, how we may overpower him that we might bind him to afflict him. We will give, um, then we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength is and how you may, may be bound to afflict you. And he keeps telling her stuff that's not true and not true and not true. Now, should he have been hanging around this woman? No. I mean, he's shacking up with her. He's sleeping with her. He's doing all this stuff. Uh, remember Joseph? You remember Potiphar? Joseph was a slave in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar had a wife. We, we don't know her name. I like to call her Predator. <laughs> and day after day, she came to Joseph and she said, lie with me. And he said, sure. Is that what Joseph said? He said, no. How could I do this great evil and sin against God? See, Joseph had control over his inner man. And he couldn't get away from her because he was a slave. But he controlled his spirit and he controlled his thought life. He went to battle on this thing and every day she nagged him and nagged him and nagged him. Here's the difference between Joseph and Samson. Verse seven, uh, 16. It came about, and I'm in 16, 16. It came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. So he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, a razor has never come on my head for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. See, he knew his calling. He knew it. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me and I will become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart, she sent, called the lords of the Philistines saying, come up once more for he has told me all that is in his heart. She knew he had come clean. Why did he come clean? Because he's hanging around with a woman he shouldn't be hanging around with and he couldn't say no to her in the first place. See, bad company corrupts good morals. And he never could he never could discern or want to discern a godly woman because all he cared about was if she was pleasing sexually to him. No thought of character, no thought of marriage, no thought of parenting children, just absolutely sheer sexual temptation and lust. It gripped him, it controlled him. And, 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 and it's, all, it's in all of our hearts, isn't it? I mean, we're men. Man, I mean, we just see something. A lot of times women don't get how guys operate. What, and, and you know, this is interesting because the pornographers would figure out that women really aren't into pornography like men are because men are gratified by the eyes. I mean, we just see something and boom. I mean, some gal can be absolutely innocent and, you know, I mean, you got nuclear fission going on inside of you. And she's just, I mean, she's just innocently walking across the street, and there's something about here, and man, you're, boom, you're excited and you're aroused just by the eyes. Pornographers have figured out that doesn't work with women. So now they're writing books like Fifty Shades of Grey. And see, these are books about relationships that are <sighs> filthy. I haven't read them, but I've heard about them. And see, they read about relationships that are pornographic in the content. 
But it's all in the context of a relationship. And anything goes, and there are no rules. See, that's where the pornographies are cleaning up with women, because men and women are different. Uh, verse 19, she made him sleep on her knees, called for a man. He's such a wuss, she tells him how to sleep. Sleep on my knees? What do you think I am, nuts? Is that comfortable? I think I'll sleep on my knees tonight. Have a good sleep here tonight. When was the last time you slept on your hand? This guy is such a wuss. He is putty. He's jello on her hand. So, so, Samson, sleep on your knees. And when you get up, we'll have a nice time. So the little guy sleeps on his knees. The big, strong man sleeps on his knees because he he's not man enough to stand up to an ungodly woman. They called for a man, had him shave off the seven locks of his hair. She began to afflict him, and his strength left him. She said, uh, she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. He awoke from his sleep and said, I'll go out as at other times and shake myself free. He did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes. They brought him down to Gaza, bound him with bronze chains, and he was a grinder in the prison. You've seen those oxen that just go in circles, grinding. That's what he did. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it was shaved off. This guy hit rock bottom. And he's blind. And I want to tell you something. As he's grinding every day, and he's lost his eyes, and he's lost his strength, what did he do? He calls out to the Lord. I think these are times of uh, remorse. I think these were times of regret. How much time did he think spending? How, how, I wasted my years. I think this was a time of repentance. I think he called out to the Lord. And, and this was a period of time, because you go from sh you shaving your head to the long locks, it's going to take some time. And every day, I think God's doing business with him uh, in the pit. And he was a broken man, but he calls out to the Lord. 23, now the lords of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god. They have this big banquet. 25, it happened when they were in high spirits that they said, call for Samson that he may amuse us. They called for Samson from the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. Samson said to the boy who was holding his hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against it. The house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there, and about 3,000 men and women were on the roof looking on while Samson was amusing them. Did you see that? All the lords of the Philistines were there, all the leadership of the nation that was afflicting Israel. The entire leadership was there. Then Samson called the Lord and said, O oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, O oh God. Notice the humility. He's calling out to the Lord. It's been a long time since he's done that. Oh, Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time that I may at once be avenged to the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, braced himself against them, the one with his right hand, the other with his left. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. This isn't suicide. This is a man going to battle for his nation and for his God. Jesus said, there's no greater love than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. He was a warrior. 
And he bent with all his might so that the house fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. The entire leadership of the nation was devastated and wiped out. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. Tragic story. I think a lot of us relate to this guy because of the wasted years. But I want to finish with this. He actually finished strong in his last act. Because in this last moment, you know what he did? Let me give you some observations. Number one, he, re he relied on the Lord instead of his gifts. Number two, he was controlled by sacrifice rather than by passion. Three, he finally stepped up to his calling. Four, he redeemed his wasted years by repentance. There's a great verse in Joel 2.25. You know what it says? A lot of us look back and see wasted years. In Joel 2.25, the Lord says, The years which the locusts have eaten, I will restore. And I wasted all those years. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said one time that if you've lost 10 years of crops, God is such a great God that he can give you 10 years of harvest in one year. He can do it. He can do it relationally. He can do it with broken relationships. He says, man, I've, I, I, I've broken trust. Every guy in here has broken trust. But God is so good, he does a work in our heart and in our character, and he changes us. And you know what happens? We become trustworthy. And those who used to would not trust us, wouldn't believe us, wouldn't talk to us. They knew if our lips were moving, we, they were lying. Now they'll come to you for counsel. Is that not extraordinary? Yes, it is. The years which the locusts have eaten, I will restore. His outer man was blind, but his inner man was trusting in the Lord. And quite frankly, his greatest failure led to his greatest victory. That's how God works. Now, he repented at the end in his last act. That was the end of his days. You know what's amazing? We repent and God forgives us. You know what's amazing? Is that we're still alive. Isn't it? You know why you're still alive? Because God has a work for you to do and you haven't finished it yet. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that you might walk in them. You're alive because you haven't finished your work. You can look back and you, many of you guys have situations and you knew that you should have been dead, but you, but you didn't die because Psalm 68 says to the Lord belongs escapes from death. He kept you alive for a reason. And yeah, you have re regret and remorse and, oh, I wasted this and I wasted this. Yeah, but you know what? He's kept you alive because he wants to use you and he wants to make a difference in your life. And you can't die until your work is done. And you say, well, what happens when my work is done? Here's what happens. Watch this. When your work is done, it's... <laughs> you're out of here. To be absent from the body is to be what? What I'm saying is, we're like Samson. We've spent so much time fighting our father, all of us. But he's the God who will not let us go. That's grace. That's mercy.
Well, Steve, I still sin. Yeah, I know. So do I. But no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. What a message. What a truth. What a hope. What a future. What a God. We praise your name, our Father, for sending Jesus to die in our place. You don't want us focused on the past because if we go back there, we'll just paralyze ourselves right now. Uh, was, it, was it Robert Murray McChain who said, for every 10 looks, you take it yourself? We look at ourselves all the time, our screw-ups, our foul-ups, our miss-ups, our stupid moves. He said, for every 10 looks, you take it yourself. Actually, I, I reversed it. For every one look, you take it yourself. Take 10 looks at Jesus. Help us to keep looking unto Jesus, who takes us from shame to fame. He is the author and finisher of our faith. In his name we pray. Amen.